We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect and Celebrity Interviews Live with the, from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, how are you? And you know what? I love this guy. This guy has energy and we're going to learn so much. And his bio doesn't do justice for his newest venture and success. So, Greg, are you excited about our guest? I'm super excited. Even more so now. Yeah, after he told us more and more. And then I'm going to get, you know, as the number 12 celebrity podcast in the world, according to Feedspot and the celebrities that I interview on a regular basis, he had to tell me he has a better laundry list of celebrities he's interviewed. And I'm impressed in his background and everything. Rick Sanchez, CEO of Agua Media, but much, much more journalist, forever award-winning, veteran journalist and Emmy Award winner. How are you, Rick? Thanks for stopping by. I'm great. I'm great. Life is really good. And uh, it's great to be with you guys. All right, so let's just jump right into this, Rick. You were giving us this bio, this amazing bio. Then we want to get right into your current business venture. That's it's it's having such great success with the podcast network and everything. What it fits into? Well, I mean, I guess the, 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 it fits into who I am, right? I mean, I came to the United States as a refugee. Poor, uh, my mom sewed shoes. My dad was a busboy at a hotel, and that was one of his three jobs. Together, they made $10,000 a year combined income. So suffice it to say, I grew up in poverty, and yet with two of the most loving and wonderful parents that a human being could ever have. But I was a kid who grew up in a barrio. So, you know, the idea that somehow I was able to cut through from that to being the main, you know, the, the first and only Latino anchor to have his own namesake show on CNN, Rick's List, to be a television news anchor on Fox News, CNN, and NBC, to win Peabody's and all that crap. Um, and then to be fired by CNN, um, you know, after, you know, interviewing Gorbachev and Castro and Reagan and Carter and Clinton and, you know, all of these guys, and, and, and then get fired by CNN because I screwed up and that happens in life as well. And then I said, okay, what am I going to do now? Well, I'll remake myself. I'll, I'll turn myself into a chief marketing officer and a partner in a healthcare company. And then five years, that healthcare company goes public for $4.5 billion. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing ride. And now I decided that ride puts me in a situation where what I should do is tell my stories and help other, others understand, especially Latinos who are the most underrepresented and yet most powerful force in America today. So I've decided to create, we decided, myself and Salter Hillo, to create a, a media company, which is essentially a podcast company to tell those stories and to reach out to others. That's it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Impressive. So, see, I like him saying it compared to us saying it, right, right, Greg? Oh, That's yeah. why I hate when podcasts, they just introduce the whole thing, give the whole bio, unless you told the best story. <laughs> That's the bottom line. And it's like, it's inspiring, Greg, isn't it? Oh, it's very powerful. You know, in fact, as, as he was telling me that story, it, it made me go all the way back to when I was uh, 18 years old. Maybe I was 17 at the time, going into high school, and my mom wanted me to take French. And I said, no, I'm taking Spanish because the French are never going to be in America. <laughs> the thing i mean latinos right now we're the fifth largest gdp in the world if we were a country think about that we're right behind what uh us china japan germany latinos in america then comes brazil and then comes italy and then comes great britain and india so and we just moved up three places and if you go by gdp growth the fastest growing economic force in the world is China, then India, and then 
U.S. Latinos ahead of the United States itself. That's wow. crazy. Wow. This is, this is, these amazing. are stories that are 80% of Latinos are U.S. citizens. 95% of Latinos speak English who are under the age of 41. The average, the common age of a Latino is 11 years old. The common age of a white Anglo-Saxon in America is 58. I mean, those are nodes, of course, which is a metric study. But when you look at these things, you ask yourself, why don't more people know these things? And that's those are kind of the stories that I want to tell because those are truths. And that's why you created that the network and the types of yeah. shows that you've looked at. What kind of shows are being looking at for your podcast network? Agua Media is essentially a place for Latino content creators to be able to talk to other Latinos and others in the United States because it's not just Latinos. You know, we kind of trademarked the term Latino Plus, which really is Latinos and everybody else out there who didn't have it easy. You know, uh, whether you're Indian American or Asian American or LGBT American or, you know, whatever, the gamut, uh, African American. There's a certain kind of person in the United States right now who doesn't relate to what the establishment portrays, especially when you turn on like the news channels and when you put on Hollywood. It's all crap. It's all fake. It's also unbelievably unrealistic. But there are people in America who are probably more real than a lot of that. And those are the people that we're really kind of targeting with stories about success, with stories about truths, with stories about inside information that you can use to maybe learn from some idiot like me who's failed a lot more than he succeeded and somehow ended up okay. Well, you know how it goes. It's the people who are the most successful feel the most. Boy, ain't that the truth. I mean, <laughs> that's the I learning have, lessons, right? I am, I am the most, I mean, <laughs> man, I'm telling you, Greg, I'm the most imperfect guy you'll ever meet. I mean, I've, I mean, aside from the, you know, the typical stuff guys say where my kids are always beating me up and stuff, but not to mention my wife, but um, no, I mean, I had the best job in America and I screwed it up at CNN because, you know, I once said something I wish I hadn't said and it got me fired. And I went from an $850,000 a year job as one of the top anchors and most highly rated anchors at CNN who just written a great book to a guy who couldn't get a job, couldn't get a, somebody to return their phone calls and lost his house and had to start all over again. Oh my goodness. Wow. wow. So that's, you know. And then how did you kind of get back once you hit bottom? What made you give you that, you know, just drive to say, I'm going to keep going again. And then, and then to, and to land what you were able to land through that. You, you, when, when you're forced to stretch, you find things within you and about you that you're then able to use to remake yourself. And when you remake yourself, you actually come out better. I never in my wildest dreams, I mean, essentially the back of the envelope is, I've been in communications all my life. I was very successful. I had the highest rated show on CNN. Nobody would hire me after CNN dropped me because they said, that guy's tainted, he's no good. So I said, well, what do I do? Well, I thought, well, I know how to communicate. I understand branding. So I'll just go do a lot of other stuff until I learn new skills. And the new skill I learned was marketing and sales, which as a journalist, I never knew. I was just the guy who sat in the chair and said, good evening, here's the, <laughs> here's the news, right? When I learned marketing and sales, I said, wait a minute, I have a brand. And all people know that Rick Sanchez is this Latino guy and he made it all the way to CNN. I want to associate with him. So I started a company and rather than allow the people I work for, which is the radio station, you know, I was doing local radio news and local TV news, went back to that. But instead of letting them sell me and get money from my brand, I went to one of the people who was going to put advertising into the company. And I said, 
Don't give it to them. Give it to me. And don't give me anything. Give me a piece of your company. And I'll help you build a company and we'll do it together. So mm. we started a healthcare company and I took a piece of it, a piece of equity. And I said, don't pay me. And that equity turned up being a chunk of a $4.5 billion publicly traded company, which we moved to that position in four and a half years by triangulating my brand and the Rick Sanchez brand by going to media companies and saying, you want me to do a show for you? I'll do it for free, but give me half of the avails. That was half of whatever commercials you have, I want them. And I'm gonna put them in my company. And that's how we grew the company. And it was kind of genius. And I don't know how the hell I figured it out, but <laughs> I think it was, you know, it, here's what it is. Here's, here's what it is, Neil. When you're in a situation, when you're desperate and you have to stretch yourself, you find things about you and ways about you that you never knew existed. And that's where the rubber meets the road and you're able to do something that you would never have done if you would have kept that comfy $850,000 job anchoring the news at CNN. Amen. I'm going to tell you because the thing is that, I, that I've learned in studying some of the people, you utilized your brand for media, then went to a different status that's a lot stepped down, but found out, guess what? I'm a brand. People are going to be attracted to me Bingo. Found the right opportunity, because that's the thing with when you have a brand is people who are going to be attracted to you. I teach my clients that all the time. I say, yep. you attract yourself to somebody and then they literally, they're going to want to pay you to be part with them. And the more you become more of a brand, the more people get more attracted to you and the more opportunities come your way. Well, you landed that one, but I'm sure you're seeing them all the time, Rick. It didn't stop right it's then this isn't stop this is just the, the beginning am i right from what yeah you know? i just we in fact i'm 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 it's funny you said that i'm about to start a new roll-up which we think will be another ipo and it'll be a billion dollar ipo and it's a different kind of roll-up but i was recently on with jim kramer and he was talking about latinos in the united states and the guy who watched me on jim kramer tell the story i just told you picked up the phone and called me and he said we're a very well-funded operation. We're going to do this roll-up and we want you to be both on our board and part of our team. And we're going to make you a founding partner and equity partner because we are really excited about getting this going. And when I looked into it, I went, oh my God, this is an amazing opportunity. So it's almost like, you know, part two of what I described a little while ago is about to happen again in my life. And it's because of what you just said, Neil, it's Avail yourself of opportunities by creating a brand, understand that brand, share that brand and opportunities will come. So that woe is me, oh my God, I was fired. Nobody loves me, nobody wants me, nobody, everybody hates me that I once was is now, no, there's still gonna be people who hate you and people are always gonna hate you, but you can develop a brand with those people who look at you as something unique and you can build something around that. I was lucky that's the, the tip. All right, Greg, ask him the question you ask all the successful people. And this well, guy before I do that real quick, you know, in Agua Media, um, what are you doing to help your, I guess, artists um, develop their own personal brander? Is that not something you're doing yet? Mentor, mentor. I, I, I enjoy it, actually. So I bought this five acre ranch and we got horses and it's really pretty. And we just discovered a caiman in one of the canals. So we got an issue there, but that's a side point. <laughs> it's like this nine foot like crocodile. Wow. He's been eating all our ducks. So anyway, so we've got this wonderful property and we've got a lot of land out there. So we built a, uh, a production studio uh, with, you know, uh, everything. 
that you could possibly imagine from tracking booths to editing booths to studio to lights, everything. And we are inviting people who want to be uh, content creators. They come here, they love it because it's really pretty. And um, they spend an hour a week creating podcasts and creating their stories. I help fund them. I put, I get behind them and I mentor them. I talk to them about what works for me and what doesn't. And I love that because I think there's nothing better in life than being heuristic, right? Than being able to share whatever experiential knowledge we may have and whatever wisdom we may have. So that's what I do. And I really enjoy doing it. And I'm glad that somehow the universe and God were able to put me in a place where I can help people. That's phenomenal. So the question that Neil wanted me to ask you is someone I ask all of our guests, you know, for, for my, my listeners, um, what's the most important thing you've ever learned, Rick? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what we were just talking about. I almost think that if you haven't failed, find somebody to trip you so that you can fall down. When you get up, turn around and thank them for tripping you because that fall is going to help you become better. And the only way we improve in life is when we fail. When we're comfortable, we don't succeed. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm certainly not telling people that they should go out there and be, you know, at mess ups and look to fail, but look at every time you don't succeed as an opportunity to succeed. That's really been kind of the story of my life many times over. And I think that, uh, you know, that resilience is probably the most important thing, craft, ability, talent, skill set that any human being can have to be able to uh, become a success. So powerful. Wow. And where can people find Agua Media? Where's the best place? Anywhere, right? Well, yeah, obviously, we, uh, we the Rick Sanchez podcast is a really cool, fun podcast that you should listen to because it teaches a little bit of whatever I know, and I do my best to try and get those ideas out there. The Agua Media podcast library, which contains a lot of stuff, is at aguamedia.com. If you go to aguamedia.com, you'll see all the podcasts that we're about to roll in, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. We're talking to all people, but... We happen to be Latinos because we are Latinos and we're 20% of the population of the United States. Excellent. What a great show. Again, this was Neil, the media giant effect, Neil Haley show, and also celebrity interviews live from the grotto with Greg Hanna. Take care guys. You guys. We're back to Neil Haley's show. And I'm first excited to welcome my co-host cowboy three, four, seven, Damon Harper. Damon, how are you, man? I know you're excited about our guest today. Oh man. I'm super excited. Nicholas, thank you for your time. Extremely grateful. I'm happy to be here. Yes, so our guest today is Nicholas Tana. He's going to talk about a bunch of different things in his career in Hollywood to now with his IT company and his new book. Nicholas, thanks for stopping by. So kind of tell me what was the first thing, entrepreneurship or really being involved in the the the, the game of Hollywood and stuff? What was first? I started more pursuing writing, directing, uh, music, career in, in the arts. Um, and I, one of my first jobs was as an intern, paid intern for Arizona State University. I worked for PBS. Um, I did everything literally starting on like putting makeup on people all the way. It was a kind of a cool internship. They had us do every single part, right? So you eventually work your way up to directing. Um, and that's how I broke in and originally started with the goal of which I always wanted. I really fell in love with the 90s filmmaking scene. And I love the idea of marrying my love of writing with my love of music into directing films, moving pictures. He's a definitely creative uh, cowboy. Go ahead with your first question for him. 
So, so like, just from like your education, right? The sweat equity on your journey, right? Regarding your your skill set of writing and your experience in Hollywood, Hollywood post production, pre production development, um, that whole process. How did you happen to correlate, right? The 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 scalability, right, into your skill set of writing. Yeah, I I mean I think writing's about communication and writing's about being able to understand um what what's the message or the problem or something to be solved, right? And right. um and so so that ability to think actually and organize one's thoughts, I developed at an early age. I mean, I was an English major in college too. So you really learn how to study writing and analyze arguments and debates. Right. Interestingly enough, so I was able to bring that to everything I do in terms of business connecting, communicating. Um, and 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 that skill set, interestingly enough, I think is going to diminish with time because now we have tools that can do the surface writing for right. you and, and organize for you. So the ability of one's own mind and, and be able to organize one's thoughts and arguments and put things together and make connections, that's going to diminish with time. Fortunately, I built those skill sets over a long period of time and I can bring <laughs> that to the table. Now, that's important because, again, that's where I'm very creative in ways as well, Nicholas, so that my brain, the way it works is specifically I'm an idea guy. Now with AI, and we'll talk about this later in this conversation, I have changed the way I think. And that's smart because I a lot of people can't scratch the surface with AI. They only go to the beginning where it's so much more. And, we, and that's where you and I as creatives say, okay, we want to go deeper. We want to go deeper, our thoughts. And as a writer, that's the deepness that you are. So when you were doing that writing and marrying, uh, marrying all those different things in Hollywood, how did you break in? What was that way to kind of get in the door? So you had to be a sell yourself, just like directors have to sell themselves as much as actors do. That's just a different way of doing it, right? Yeah, well, when I did it, it was different, right? Although it's probably still the same in a sense. There's, there's, there's sort of this insular community and there's gatekeepers. When I did it, um, well, I already went to school and and I and I was able to get an internship through an essay competition I won. So I got so I initially got some experience working in television for school. When I graduated, though, even with all these all this experience, I was an honors graduate. I spoke several languages. I could not get a job. Right? I could not. It was a really hard time too. It was just like sending the resume out the typical way. People weren't responding to me. What I actually did was I took a job at Kelly Temp Services temping in the HR department at ESPN. Wow. Now, mind you, ESPN was located in Bristol, Connecticut, where I happened to have gone to high school too. So I even had that home, you know, person from there, you know, thing. I had a lot of angles. I had TV experience, you know, um, and I still had a hard time. They weren't calling me. They weren't writing me back. Um, taking that temp job, I'm hanging out with the HR person and we're literally stuffing envelopes for some entertainment thing that was happening or some Christmas party thing that was going to happen. And I'm like, look, I told her the same spiel. I'm like, I have all this experience. I've put my resume in. Like, who are you taking? Like, if you're not taking me, like, why am I not a viable candidate? I'm looking for an entry level job. And she said, <laughs> I'll say this now because it's been years. Honestly, you didn't hear this from me, but um, you got to know somebody. And so I said, well, I know you. Right, right. <laughs> and we just spent a good eight hours stuffing envelopes. There's nothing like doing that to get in the trenches with someone, you know, and to talk personal. And of course, she's like, well, do you have a resume on you? I'm like, and that's when you actually had hard, you know, paper resumes. I said, actually, I do. And I brought my resume out and I showed her my resume. I got a call the next day. 
um, landed a job within three days. And that's how I kind of got in and started. And I remember thinking fun how funny that was because years later, someone asked me, he was like, who did you know to get in here? And I said, well, there was a story. <laughs> There's someone in HR. <laughs> when it when it comes to right the uh, the systematic process of developing your content, what is like the self gratifying way to always make sure that you're empathizing right with your with your yeah your client avatar or you know a certain demographic that you know that you're 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 feeding the solutions to regarding the problems. I mean, for me, you're asking a question of how do you empathize the sort of right like how because because that is the key that right. human quality of empathy is something that is not so valued it is surfacely but not really right? right I think for years, our society has revered machines and computers and all the amazing things they can do which for good reason right but they're super calculators I mean they're reality is they don't have the ability to empathize neither does ai right despite some of the new groundbreaking stuff mit is doing with emotional ai and other things that are not really being talked about so i think that ability to empathize is a very human quality that we underrate and unfortunately in our society with our rush to get things done and to get produced and bottom line and a very narcissistic tendency to kind of focus on the self and the, the the rugged individual, which has always been a part of our American culture um, versus the community and others around us, we've really lost respect for that empathy. And empathy, really putting others first in some ways, or at least recognizing them as equal, <laughs> um, really, really kind of understanding the problem from another person's perspective. The, the old cliche of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is underrated and undervalued. But if one does that really, really well, not only do you establish really good relationships, but yes, you can predict and 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 imagine and 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 plan for solutions to people's problems, right? So. Right, and that's that's key uh, to do that. So let's talk because uh, again, we don't have a lot of time. Let's go right into your new latest project. Uh, and talking about again e junkie and how that how that all started how did it how did it go how did you do that yeah e junkie sci fi noir um, set in a future world um, where we've actually eliminated pain and suffering through emotional regulation devices you can actually see people's emotions with colors on this apparel that people wear so it's like the old movies eighties wow. mood rings you know if you're wearing those <laughs> and the idea is that this helps to regulate and create peace and you know you know it makes the world a better place right this is like the Silicon Valley cliche. And um, and so if you do make the world a better place and you're able to eliminate pain and suffering, is it truly a better place? Or did we just exchange one solution or one, you know, to create another problem, right? With every solution comes new problems. And so so there's this other group in this in this story called the Guardians of Pain, who actually believe we need pain and suffering as part of the human experience to grow, to evolve. Um, and so they have curated the most painful moments in human history through DNA scraping of corpses. And they're able to take that memory and they're selling it in a form of a drug to people on the market called Torch. And it's starting a revolution because the people in the society don't know this history of themselves. They don't know this, I mean, from all kinds of horrible moments, like from the Holocaust to like the Salem witch trials, et cetera, throughout human history. And so, 
So they, so the the group that's in charge, the guardians of the World Corporation Organization, which is like a conglomerate of all corporations. There's no more nations in my futuristic imagining world. Um, they hire this detective to stop the guardians of pain before it starts a revolution, and that's E Junkie. Um, and and it 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 just been a uh, inspiration from a number of experiences in life, and um, it's Simon Schuster's putting it out, and I'm excited to see it out there. Just to promote right and campaign right now. What is the most prevalent message that, you know, readers can pick up on in the stopping, right? Right, in the stopping regarding the, well, there's, there's no conglomerates or nations in your futuristic thinking, but what is the, the, the most prevalent, you know, message that they could pick up on regarding the stopping? Not to give too much, but just for, to campaign um, the story, E-Junkie. What, what do you mean, the stopping of pain and suffering? Well, well, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So so the question becomes, like, if you look at the opioid crisis, you look at a lot of the things in our society right now, like just everything that we used to escape, escapist entertainment, right? right. You know, everything we do, why, why do we do all these things we do in life? Like, what, right. is, what is driving us, right? Adrenaline. To get that adrenaline watch, to get that that. We, what is? But, but what, why do we feel that adrenaline watch is necessary? That anxiety, that that that, because that's a level of suffering. We don't necessarily. Recognize. It is. But the right? dopamine, yes. but the dopamine feeling when when the first of anything, it just it it rushes you, and you want that all the time. Yeah, yeah, you kind of do, but like if you drink coffee and you get that rush, you feel like you got that rush, but then all of a sudden, eventually, it goes away. And then you got to do something else to get another rush, right? Like, right. can you sustain a rush forever? And if you do, then how would you ever know what a rush feels like? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So this is what's interesting is, well, then with the e-junkie thing is, why would you want pain and suffering? The adrenaline rush we get is not pain and suffering. I, I mean, I can debate you with this, and I don't think that <laughs> the, the case of the, the, the like, l- let's say you have $0 in the bank, right? And you have to get this sale today. And I've lived there, done it, and where I have a t-shirt to prove it. I think everyone in this in this room right now has learned it in one way. Where that's rushing, okay, we finally made it. And it's what a rush. But I don't like that freaking pain and suffering before that. Yeah, but the question is, what what is the pain and suffering? So if you the really unknown, think about what is so think of what Tony Robbins talks the, about the, the uncertainty that Tony Robbins talks about. Okay, we so you're saying it. the pain and suffering comes from uncertainty of what? Like survival? That you're yeah. not going to have money to survive yeah. and put food on the table? And, yes. and is that really some pain and suffering is coming from? Yeah. Okay, because I got news for you. The moment you're born, you're going to die. <laughs> Newsflash. Yeah, that's not maybe not true. That could be not true if you look at sci-fi. Well, there are people that will argue it, and there's cryogenic chambers and all this technology. Is no, all the things like in that sleeves and that one show. I forget what movie TV. If, if sci-fi is becoming sci-fact now, man. Okay, but let's put it this way. Let's say, let's even let's, you, let me humor you and say that's not true. Let me humor you and say that we can be like vampires and live forever. Do you think that would end your pain and suffering? No. Why? Because you would always, always an unknown of something that would really disappoint you. Where And where does that come from? That comes from anxiety. That comes from... Uh, that's the byproduct. Oh, wow. The unknown. So if you really I'm think about it, where does that suffering come from? You had to ask it for yourself, but I'm going to give you a hint. Okay. Self-grasping. We all want something that isn't necessarily what we have. And the moment we need feel we need something else, we're not happy. 
Yes. So just seeking happiness is a setup for failure because this moment you're going to try to get it. <laughs> you see, so I could debate. I could debate you I on that. Nicholas. I love it. I could debate you on that, Nicholas. And you got Mr. Mindfulness-based therapist in here. Yeah, too. I so I, I don't. I don't know, Nicholas. This is where you're going to get in a little bit of a great conversation about this <laughs> that we didn't expect, right? <laughs> so okay. So I, I am. I'm going to give you my take, and I'm going to get Damon's take. And then you're going to go back to you based on your book, because we're not here to not say don't read your book, because we of course that's going to lead to more of a conversation you ever thought with two of us. Yeah. I have been going through healing process of a breakup, and I am really into the law of attraction. And people can say, go screw you that you kneel your, your nuts on this. But honestly, I believe and that we can reprogram our brains and reprogram the way we think and all these different things. And I've been going through hypnotherapy through the law of attraction and things, certain specific things and how we can look at negative thoughts that come in our brain throughout the day and how we can kind of re and change the way we think to create happiness all the time. You know, Tony Robbins believes this. And I wonder what your thoughts with Tony Robbins are. So my belief, I would say no. I would say that we can create that type of a situation. We're going to go through hardship. We're going to go through trials, but we can really create the positive in that. So if we didn't have any sadness, any unhappiness as you, in your book, I think that we wouldn't be boring, bored people, but that's why it needs to become a movie. But go ahead, Damon, with your, your thoughts, Nicholas, saying that you can't create that. So like I'm I'm gonna we're having cloth talk. So let, let let me approach. So is is manifestation right a form right of of unhealthy, you know, is it an unhealthy habit because we're constantly putting ourselves in a state of suffering? Right? Are you asking me? Yes. 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 I, I I would say yes. Mm. I, I mean I, I think it's interesting because I've read creative visualization and i know i'm going to be very unpopular here right because that's good that's okay i like that because that's what's fun it's a form of debate but yeah. i'm going to tell you the truth as i feel it and have experienced it and i have some serious tragic stuff that's happened in my life and I've, I've been able to move that through and 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 uh sublimate it through art to some extent it doesn't necessarily take it away but um i can tell you that i do feel that I used to think and I used to try all that stuff. But, you know, really intrinsic in that is this feeling that you're not good enough with who you are at the moment in the moment. Right. That there's right. always <laughs> this level of something you believe you need to manifest and need to be I happy. And I, I can tell you right now, Tony Robbins isn't happy. He may say he is. He may smile, but that doesn't mean you're happy. We know that, right? I could be smiling and sad right now, and you could fake it all day, right? They say fake. Oh, so that I need to get Tony to see meet you. I'm, I don't know if you've met him, Nicholas. Have you ever met Tony? I have not, but I would have a lot of things to say to Tony if if he if he'd hear me out. But I don't think I don't think anyone as driven as Tony is happy per se. And it's not to say drive is bad, but, but I he think wants dopamine in his body every second. Yeah. He does. He does. Yeah. What what is so what is happiness? Because they say that, right, when like because time gives us a sense of urgency. Cause because like the, the limited amount of time that we have gives us a sense of urgency to love, to 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 find passion, to you know, to 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 accomplish or whatever, or whatever you may, you know, want to look at, however you want to look at it. Um, what is so what is happiness with like the fact that there's beauty in the sense of urgency, right? Or is, is the knowing, right? Is knowing happiness? Because if you know, right, that time is limited, right? 
And that gives you the sense of urgency to find love, to find your passion work, to, to find friends, to stay healthy or to, you know, set goals. Is that happiness? Well, I mean, it depends on your goals, but I definitely think if you have a sense of urgency, that underlying anxiety is not necessarily a form of happiness. Can it be virtuous? Can it be something that results in good things for you? Depends. It could be. Yeah. The pure fact that we have a finite life makes us live our life in a certain way that's more meaningful, then that's wonderful. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> but 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 if but if it but if it creates an anxiety, that means that we're gonna make life choices that step on other people or hmm. create this survivalistic mindset, that means we're actually not finding real happiness, we're just exchanging one problem for another, then no, I don't think it's gonna bring you happiness. So that's okay. a great point because it will come back. All right. So Nicholas, the thing that I find this is this has got to be a movie. Is that a chance at one point? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I, I you know, I can't say that some pretty big players in Hollywood have are taking a look at it right now and making that consideration. Obviously, with the strikes, we might not see any movement for a little bit. But um, for now, I'm focused on the book and it's coming out and I'm really proud of it. I, there's, there's a prescient chapter on the fall of Hollywood in it. Um, it kind of ties in with the plot in a way. Um it starts with the unions too. <laughs> um, yeah, there's 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 a lot of interesting, timely things and uh I, I think, you know, it's entertaining and fun and all that. But at the same time, I do think there's an important message there. There's a sociopolitical message underlying this story. Right. And I think, you know, I think the best sci-fi and horror, especially ones that combine the two like this, um, can give us that. Um, because we go in open enough to say, hey, I want that thing. I want that entertainment. I want something to make me have fun, you know, heal my pain. And then all of a sudden, like, wow. It gets us off that roller coaster for a second. We start to question our own existence and our own choices. I think the best art does that. And I guess that's why I take the time to do it, because I'm hoping to kind of help with that and and reflect on this world. We live in this all mysterious, crazy world we're all sharing together um, and and reflect it through story. Yeah. You definitely need to call out Tony Robbins. And that could be another way to get the book. Maybe just tweet him out, maybe thread him because threads he might respond. I, and but the thing, is, the thing is, in all honesty, it's not a thread. I think the, I'm sure he's doing marvelous things or trying to do marvelous thread, things. Thread, thread, not threats. I, I just don't necessarily think, um, I, I mean, so, to answer your question, I think if, you know, if, if he didn't have an anxiety or something underneath his motivation, um, then I don't know if he'd quite be as motivated as he is. No, but no, I said a thread, not a threat, a thread. So thread, oh, thread. About- oh okay, much different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thread them out because thread will respond. Well, well, it's it's funny though, man, because we use words like disrupt and all these like really hardcore worlds and beat the competition. Like we do look at in a capitalist society as it's 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 us or them, right? Like there can only be so many winners in a poker game. But you know, once you get really good at that and you've got all the money and no one else has the money at the table, you can't play poker, right? Right. <laughs> and that's what tends to happen in a corporatocracy, right? Like you've got a few monopolies and then you got no one left and then next thing you know everyone's like what's the difference between that and socialism <laughs> nothing right, at right. all all right so nicholas best place people can find your book is where um right now well there's amazon and barnes and noble pretty much anywhere books are still sold um there's you could also always call your local bookstore support your local bookstore or comic book shop either one say hey i'd like e-junkie you know and and order it through there they can get it for you all right we appreciate it nicholas thanks for stopping by Absolutely, guys. Thank All you right. so much. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Robert Marks. Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Clive and Change, the real story with our host, Dr. Robert Marks. Dr. Marks, how are you? And I know you're excited about uh, the topic today. 
I really, uh, this is going to be a, a little bit of a, a tense, in-depth topic. It's a dissection of the concept of reparations. Is it a can of worms that we are opening by considering this? So let me begin by saying, one, uh, please don't accuse me of being a racist. I am not. I'm not a misogynist or any of the other names that people like to throw out. In fact, if anybody accuses this, intellectual dissection of the concept of reparations, they are probably the racist and not me. So put that aside. What I want to discuss is, okay, we are considering as a nation, and a couple states have committed somewhat to um, reparations. The concept was introduced as of, to, as of recently, spearheaded by leaders in California, uh, is to pay $5 million uh, to each Black American descendant of a slave. This already begins a bit of a controversy since the United States came into existence in 1776 and the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all slaves legally, was in 1863, a matter of 87 years. So if we look at that, that's no more than five generations removed before all of the individuals that were formerly slaves or their families were actually free. So the other kind of curious point is say that um, California first became a state in 1850. That was 13 uh, years before slaves were free and that um, California was not even a slave state. So one has to wonder what's California's motivation in this other than to appease a certain group, perhaps for votes. So uh, other states that have embraced concept have been Illinois, it came a state in 1818 and Pennsylvania in 1787. So let's divide this into two separate points. Part one that I'll discuss is who is deserving of reparation? As it's been proposed, $5 million should be apportioned to every direct descendant of a black slave. Several questions arise from this. I'll explore each one. Part two is going to be who's going to pay for this? So let's start out with who is deserving a reparation? How much is owed to descendants of black slaves who produce children from non-slaves, non-slave owners? Thomas Jefferson is well known. He sired six children with a black slave. Now he freed those six children upon his death in 1824. So uh, they were then free to um, either marry or have children with slaves until 1863, but beyond then, it would be non-slave. Uh, so what we're looking at is a generational dilution of a real black slave prior to 1863. So are they to get 10%, 20%, maybe 30% of the $5 million? Um, that hasn't been thought out yet. So that's the first worm in the can of worms. Uh, to be fair, what about the black soldiers from the famous uh, Massachusetts 54th Regiment and the lesser known Louisiana Guards who were black Americans free? And they fought to free the slaves. Do they get a chance to recoup money from the people who they tried to free by sacrificing uh, their uh, time and effort in the military? It gets complicated. And that's what I'm pointing out. To be fair, once again, what about the descendants of Union soldiers who died or whose careers were lost by their service to the Union Army to free the slaves? Many of those descendants had reduced capability of building their legacy or building their fortunes 
uh, because they lost their father, they lost their, their mother or um, lost an uncle. Uh, so that has to be looked into. To be fair, even once again, uh, there were more slaves than just black slaves. The Chinese immigrants who built our, radio, our, our railroads, uh, they were forced to work under cruel condition, had only a subsistence allowance of same as a slave allowance, not money wise, but basically food and shelter. Uh, they even went on strike uh, at one time. Uh, so are they eligible for reparation? Do they deserve some? And then what about the Japanese Americans who were interred during World War II because we were concerned as a country that they may be spies? They were basically enslaved in uh, almost like concentration camps. We don't like to talk about that, but that's a reality. Do they deserve some reparations? Now, closer to, to today, uh, do Black, Asian, whites, or other store owners who were killed or even uh, their families who lost their livelihood in the Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, New York riots sponsored by Antifa and Black Lives Matter organizations, do they deserve reparations? They were not enslaved, they were killed. And they lost their businesses, they lost their, their homes, they were burnt down. Uh, should that not be a consideration for reparations? Now, despite slavery, some Black Amer African descendants took advantage of the opportunities afforded by a free country called the United States. And they overcame political and individual discrimination and more power to them. They succeeded. If eligible, should successful Black Americans such as Barack Obama, LeBron James, Oprah Winfrey, Kevin Hart, many NBA, NFL, and even um, uh, soccer league players should they receive $5 million, even though they have become wealthy within the opportunities of the United States? Those are for consideration. Again, I bear no support nor antipathy toward the concept of reparation. Okay, let's go to who should pay for it. You'll find this even more interesting. Now, it's very attractive for any group or any individual to get free money. Uh, it's much harder to pay for it. Uh, uh, Therefore, the worms must be considered who is going to pay for this. Okay, number one, if those who are to receive five million in reparations are the direct descendants of slaves, the logic would dictate that those descendants of slave owners would be required to pay the amount rather than people who never owned a slave. However, after the Emancipation Proclamation, many and most former slave owner descendants married or produced children from non-slave owning families. So once again, we've got that delusional aspect. Should they pay a full fair share of it? And what is a fair share? Since the descendants of today are four to five generations removed from the slave owners who would be the logical people to pay that amount of money. So once again, a question that probably doesn't have a good answer. Okay, another question. If the concept refers to a government body, and that seems to be where all payment comes from, uh, then the responsibility, shouldn't that be from the Confederate States of America? They were the ones promoting slaves, not the United States of America. The United States was fighting them to free the slaves. So how are we going to get the Confederate States of America to pay reparations? Confederate dollars are worthless today, other than collected money. Now, You'll also notice that I'm not including slaves prior to the birth of the United States in 1776. 
Slaves were indeed owned and slavery was common throughout the British colonies. Yes, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams and John Adams and several others were slave owners, but they were British subjects. They were not American citizens until 1776. So they owned slaves prior to the birth of America. So should the British colonies or Great Britain, shouldn't they be responsible to pay reparations or at least some of them? Now, the reality of it is likely the U.S. taxpayer is going to provide the greatest amount of money to fund this if it doesn't, if it ever gets off the ground. Uh, would payment from only the slave owner states be required? Would you expect states that came in the United States after 1863 to be responsible for paying for those states that actually practice slavery? Hawaii, Alaska, Arizona, New Mexico, and many other states came into being in the United States long after the Emancipation Proclamation. Also, what about the states of the Union Army who fought to free the slaves? They already pay much for the benefit of freedom and opportunity for the descendants of the black slave. Okay, so uh, let's have another question. Would those who immigrated to the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation be responsible to pay their fair share in taxes or for reparations when they are not descendants of slave owners at all? They came in long after the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. These would include in the 1880s, the Irish who came over and then actually built the Erie Canal. Uh, those immigrants after World War I and immigrants after World War II fleeing war-torn Europe each time. And uh, what about the current numbers of dreamers that we all embrace? There's four million of them. They've just come across the border. Why would they be subject to taxation or some payment about something that occurred so long in the past and they probably are not even aware of, unfortunately. So as I stated, if we include the innocents who died and their businesses that were lost during the riots from the George Floyd tragedies, wouldn't Antifa and the BLM organizations be responsible for those reparations? So it gets a lot dicier than just the, the lovable thought of let's pay back people who seem to have been wrong. So I think we need to take a giant step back and consider that every country, Germany, certainly, look at the Holocaust, does anybody remember that? Uh, and certainly Italy during World War II, every country, every generation has a regrettable past of disservice. It's going on now in, in uh, Russia with the Uyghurs. Uh, it's been going on in China for a long time. Uh, but every country, every generation has had a disservice of domination of certain groups or cruel treatment of individuals, of groups, of religions, and on and on and on. It's impossible to right the wrongs of the past, particularly with money. They are in the past. My closing point would be the goal should not be to pay for things in the past from people who had no contribution to that wrong of the past but they should be focused in on preventing the wrongs of the present and of the future. That would be the better things to do. And I would challenge our current politicians, many of them who are now running for president, to kind of embrace that concept more than anything else.
Thank you all very much. Okay. Well, that was again, Climate Change, The Real Story with Dr. Robert Marks. We could pick up Climate Change, Real Story in any place. And that was a deep concept, wasn't it? It is a deep concept and, and one I think that everybody should look at from a more neutral rather than a, a prejudice point of view from one, one group or another. There's people decidedly against reparations, other people who decidedly for it. Uh, look at each one of these questions that I brought up. It is going to be a can of worms. And before we get into it, those need to be solved. All right, guys, that was Climate Change, the Real Story podcast, guys. Take care. And a heartbreaking a bit, but we know this sort of thing happens all the time. Just before I jump into this, you know, Siemens, they had had an issue in the supply chain that was going to the government where whereby somebody in the supply chain was changing out the proms, basically chips inside of the units um, so that they were basically sending out virus attacked open free to the government so that they could do their nasties. And that's not good. This Hi, everyone, and welcome to Toss C3 Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the founder of Toss C3, Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Neil. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm so excited about the topic. I'm excited about all the new social media platforms coming out. But again, for you, because of how technology is going crazy, your business is crazier. But today's topic, again, comes from our friends. This time at securityweek.com. Vulnerability in Cisco Enterprises switches allows attackers to modified encrypted traffic. So Cisco this week informed customers about a high severity of vulnerability in its Nexus 9000 series switches that could allow on an authenticated attackers to intercept and modify traffic. Tracked as a CVE 2023-20185, the issue impacts the ACI multi-site CloudSec encryption feature of Nexus 9000. Kind of spell that out. What does that mean for people with Cisco? Wow. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking a bit, but we know this sort of thing happens all the time. Just before I jump into this, you know, Siemens, they had had an issue in the supply chain that was going to the government where, whereby somebody in the supply chain was changing out the proms, basically chips inside of the units um, so that they were basically sending out virus attacked open free to the government so that they could do their nasties. And that's not good. But so let's talk about Cisco. Cisco is the gold standard, right? It's the flagship name in communications at the core. Basically, when we're talking about the core, we're talking about Nexus 9, 9000. You know, we're talking about a routing switch, a main big routing switch of a beast, right? That can handle millions of throughputs like in seconds. So this stuff is everywhere. It's very important, it's critical. And if you realize the internet is made up of cores, routers, and switches. And Cisco you know, is the foundation on many and most, especially at the enterprise level. Now the Nexus series, especially the 9000, is their enterprise class. It's their most expensive, highest end, you know the ones that are going to you're going to see in see in the Fortune 1000. You're going to see them in the in the mid-sized to enterprise um, non-public uh, sector, uh, non-public sector as well. And you're going to see them also in non-public companies. Very elaborate, very powerful, very cool. But here's the thing: you're talking about you know CloudSec. All right. Well, what's CloudSec? Well, it's it's we're basically talking about an ability 
for the information that's being sent over the uh, the switch itself, which is IP, Internet Protocol. You're familiar with these addresses, right? right? So that data stream has with inside of it an encapsulation, usually of encryption, and you know a CloudSec protocol and a CloudSec is basically encapsulating and encrypting and protecting that traffic so that it can't be hacked. You know, I'll, I'll put out a real generic, you know, just so people can understand a little bit. SSL, you've heard about that, right? AES 256-bit encryption, SSL, HTTPS, that kind of stuff. But we're talking before it's external facing, it's internal to the switch, you know, going from, let's say the router to switch A down all the wires, the pretty colors that are plugged in in your back office, you know, when you go into the computer room and you see that, that's internal, that's communicating with, you know, the office equipment, it's communicating with the devices, the servers, then it's going out past the firewall onto the internet. What, is, what does that mean? Well, if this stuff is hacked and it's breached, you know, you can basically snoop. They're snooping the traffic. In other words, they're able to go in when the company believes it to be encrypted and believes it can't be looked at. And they're basically able to convert it into what we call a clear text stream, clear stream, which means it comes across like, you know, English words and numbers. And you can put that into a program and parse it and this and that. And now you're basically reading real information. You can take banking, credit cards, um, email addresses, passwords, anything and everything that you type on that keyboard or is sent electronically through an uh, attachment, they're able to grab, look at, analyze, and steal. And so this, how do you protect yourself, especially a big business from this? Well, when, when you get a breach like that, but it, but it is a CBE. So there's definitely, it's known now, there's patching aware to that. You need to contact your infrastructure team, your engineering, even if it's internal, get them on it if you're in the enterprise. If it's external outsource, you know, get your, your uh, Cisco expert engineer and get that patched immediately. If you're really worried and uh, you, you can't, you don't feel like you can trust you have to get it replaced. Work with your vendor, work with Cisco. I'm sure they can work out a decent rate of exchange and get you some new equipment, new gear in place that uh, you can sleep better with at night. All right. Best place to go is TalkC3.com. Schedule a call with Greg today. I mean, Greg, am I so true that since AI has been coming out that it's getting busier and busier because really the experts are being are being finally seen that you guys are the experts and you can handle this well a lot of people that were just doing a just system go through the motions aren't able to deal with how challenging it is in this environment now right well you know it is really challenging who am i to say who's great and who isn't you know that's that's not for me i'm i'm just a guy from boston you know All just right. trying to get through life and make things happen for my clients but you you're such so passionate and that's what you do and appreciate it, Greg, and you're available. Schedule a call with him today. Yeah, all right. That was the TOS C3 podcast, guys.
Thank you.